point is that astronomy doesn't anymore involve making beautiful pictures like this one. This is a picture of what we now know as a spiral galaxy. But it's actually the first picture uh, that demonstrated that these strange objects, these spiral nebulae, come from beyond our galaxy. Uh, it's a drawing that was made in the west of Ireland by the third Earl of Ross, who had used volunteer labour from his steel uh, mill uh, to construct the world's largest telescope. He came up with a wonderful realisation that the difficult thing about building a big telescope is the mountain. The glass is hard enough, uh, but once you've got a giant mirror, how do you swing it about the sky? And Ross realised that if you've got the largest telescope in the world, that it doesn't matter what you look at, it's always going to be interesting. So his mountain was were two stone walls, which he slung the telescope off, and then just waited for the sky to turn overhead. Uh, when he did that, he was able to look at objects like this one, this is the Whirlpool Galaxy, uh, and he was able to resolve what until then had been just a nebulous mass, uh, a glowing, uh, ordered bunch of gas, into individual stars. Once you realise these things are made up of stars, you realise how far away they must be. And his mode of reporting this was to make a beautiful sketch, uh, even more beautiful if you imagine this is at the top of a step ladder, uh, in a cold Irish night, trying to sketch as the telescope swayed slightly. Uh, but he did a pretty good job. If you compare to a model image of the same galaxy, um, I think you'll find the sketch is actually pretty good. And of course, we now know that there are something like 100 billion of these galaxies in the observable universe. Uh, each one containing roughly 100 billion stars. Um, but, we don't get very far anymore by studying individual galaxies. Instead of doing that, we have to make surveys of a small but appreciable fraction of the 100 billion. Uh, our best effort today is probably something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And we're going to display that for you here. We're going to start uh, after the credits. Uh, this isn't a real uh, thing at the beginning of the universe. We've added these later. Uh, but you start, we're going to start on the Milky Way and we're going to travel outwards uh, through space. So each object you see here is a real, a whole galaxy in its correct position in space. And as we get a long way out, so you get hundreds of millions of light years away from the Milky Way, we begin to see what I think is one of the really remarkable results of the end of 20th century physics, which is there is structure in the universe even on these very large scales. There are places where there are loads of galaxies, clusters and filaments, and there are places we call cosmic voids, where there are very, there's very little matter at all. Um, in a minute, the video will stop, it will rotate, and you'll get a real sense of this honeycomb structure in the universe. And a large, more way of framing what we're trying to do in astrophysics today is to try and understand how we got this lovely universe. What forces and what processes uh, led an initially smooth but not completely smooth state uh, to lead us all the way through uh, to this sort of most clumpy space. I should say, because people sometimes misunderstand, uh, the fact that it's a butterfly shape is just because we haven't finished mapping the sky yet. The black bits in between are the equivalent of here be dragons, uh, the bits of the map that haven't been filled in yet. <laughs> if we keep going out to the scale of the observable universe, uh, you can get a sense of how much we've got left to do, which is why we continue to need astronomers. Uh, but nonetheless, a million galaxies the size of the slope is a pretty fair sample of the universe. It's about the same proportion 
And if you take the million we've sampled versus the total, it's about the same proportion as in an American opinion poll, where you go for the thousand people to predict the voting patterns of hundreds of millions. Um, and opinion polls are always right, so we're confident that we can draw grand conclusions about the universe from our sample of galaxies, and we can compare them to computerized uh, versions of the universe. And this is a simulation, and you can imagine yourself putting, uh, putting us on any one of the dots, any one of the galaxies in the simulation, pretending you've got the Sloan survey, and comparing the two. Asking questions like how many, or how empty are the emptiest boys, how big are the biggest clusters, how many things the size of the Milky Way should we expect to see. The only problem with when you do, with doing this is that you get an answer that's both accurate and utterly unsatisfying. So, as I suspect many of you know, we get a model of the universe that makes the computer universe match the real world one in many of its parameters, but which relies on a recipe in which 96% of the energy density in the universe is in forms that we don't understand. Uh, you'll have heard perhaps of dark matter and dark energy. And so we need new ways to interrogate the nature of these scales to try and understand uh, what those things are and how they're behaving. We need to get more information out of our surveys than just doing a comparison of where stuff is. One way to do that is to pay more attention to the individual galaxies. Not just treat them as blobs, but to look at their histories. And it turns out that history is often encoded in the shapes of the galaxy. So these two galaxies are typical spiral and a typical elliptical galaxy, representing the two major classes, will have had very different pasts. The elliptical is probably the product, uh, although not necessarily sort of things we don't understand, but it's probably the product of a collision between galaxies. It probably has little gas. It certainly has no star formation going on now. Whereas the spiral, uh, its disk must have formed in the early universe. It's probably been accreting material from its surroundings, but hasn't had a major merger. Uh, and uh, it, it will go on producing stars for the possible future. So if you can work out the shape of the galaxy, we can find a new ways of interrogating these things. So we can insist that the computer simulations not just get the blobs in the right place, but we want them to get galaxies that look like the Milky Way, these nice spiral galaxies uh, in the red light. So that's a much more sensitive test. The only problem is when you end up with a whole zoo of galaxies, when you end up with the many different shapes, the, the only problem is that the task of sorting this mess out, sorting them out according to their shapes, uh, is something that computers are relatively poor at. It's the same sort of difficulty problem as doing face recognition uh, using a computer. Now that's now getting somewhere. If you put a photo on Facebook, uh, and they will recognize you and your friends. Uh, maybe you think that's a good or bad thing, we can talk about it later. Um, but that's the result of a huge amount of investment and a huge amount of computer vision uh, technology designed to solve just that problem. Sadly, we failed to persuade people to invest on a similar scale in galaxy recognition. And so we don't have the ability or computing power uh, or the sophisticated algorithms needed to do an accurate job of sorting through most galaxies. Computers tend to come out at about 70% accuracy. This is good enough for the kind of tests that we want to do. The obvious next move is to get students to do it. We tried that. The student's name is Kevin Savinsky. He's a DPhil student, uh, now a lecturer at ETH, so he did all right in the end. Uh, but the first result of Kevin's thesis was that you can give a student 50,000 galaxies and then they tell you where you can sit the rest of them. <laughs> the second result of Kevin's thesis was that it really mattered to have a human look at this. 
So even though he was just one person and he inevitably made mistakes, by the end of the week he spent classifying 50,000 galaxies. He could see that we were making a cleaner division between spirals and molecules between some of these other types. And so we had to resort to calling for help. We put up a website for Galaxy Zoo now five years ago. And this is what the original version looked like. And the idea was that we'd give a talk and maybe 20 people would go to 50 galaxies. And we thought in 2007 that by 2012, that long distant era, we thought we might get a million classifications. We might have somebody look at each of our galaxies. The website, that sort of slow build is not how the internet works. Um, and so this is the first two days after Galaxy Zoo launched. That's hours in classifications per hour. So to give you a scale, this is the largest published sample at the time. Three astronomers have looked at just over 3,000 galaxies each. Uh, the unit galaxy classification is the Kevin Week. Uh, so we were doing a Kevin Week an hour. Uh, and these days we're on something like 250 million classifications. And so that means we've had lots of people look at each galaxy. And we've got not just a classification for each one, but an understanding of how accurate that classification is. Because we can distinguish those where this is a spiral and 50 people agree from galaxies where, yes, there are spiral where only 77 people agree. And that fuzzy information, that fuzzy classification, turns out to be incredibly useful. And so I've asserted, uh, uh, just to demonstrate, that we can indeed sort galaxies into their different shapes. And so we now can split ellipticals from spirals, and say which way the spiral arms are going, more on that in a second. Uh, and we can say whether galaxies have bars, whether they have a bulge at the center, they have a bulge, how dominant is it compared to the disk? Uh, and we can ask each of these separate questions. I should say, by the way, because I'll forget to later, that on Tuesday, last Tuesday, we launched a new version of Galaxy Zoo, if you go to the Galaxy Zoo org, which has about a quarter of a million new galaxies, all drawn both from the Sloan, uh, that survey I'm showing, but also from the distant universe, uh, from the Hubble Space Telescope. We've had, we've just passed, we launched on Tuesday, we've, we've just passed 600,000 classifications, which is pretty good for a week. Uh, but nonetheless, there's lots of galaxies left, and if you go on the site now, you've still got a chance of being the first person in history to see a particular galaxy, maybe see something unusual. I wanted to spend a second, though, talking about the dangers of using humans. Because any signal processing technique needs testing. Uh, ours is particularly complicated. The stuff between your ears uh, isn't a single purpose machine built for galaxy classification. And so we inherit a lot of human biases along the way. So, for example, let's just take this question of which way the spiral arms are coming. Is that the direction the spiral arms tell you which way the galaxy is turning. So the top one here will be turning clockwise, and the bottom galaxy here, in the ambient center, will be turning anti-clockwise. And you can see you can distinguish the two. We thought an early test of galaxies here would be to make sure we were seeing equal numbers of clockwise and anti-clockwise galaxies. There shouldn't be anything on the largest scales in the universe that favors one set over the other. Uh, but to our horror, we found a five sigma detection, a ridiculously significant detection, that there were more anti-clockwise galaxies in the universe than there were clockwise. A result that literally makes no sense. So we had great fun for a couple of months torturing theorists. Uh, normally when you speak to a theorist, they can explain anything before the end of the coffee break. This happened stuff. People started saying things like, well, maybe the universe had a large magnetic field and was shaped like a donut. 
uh, and other such seemingly profound statements. Uh, but it turns out that when we show people mirror images of the galaxies without telling them, we still saw more anticlockwise galaxies than we had clockwise. So it's not the universe that's odd, it's us. And it turns out this is a known optical illusion, so it's called the ballerina illusion. Uh, so here's the ballerina. How many of you see her turning clockwise? It's also an exciting peer pressure. How many of you see her turning anti-clockwise? How many people have seen her switch? If you want to see a switch, if you wave your heads like that, it'll make no difference at all, but it amuses me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this, there, there is no, this isn't changing. Um, this, is a, this is your brain making a sometimes oscillating decision about which way it's going. Uh, and it turns out to take a lot of people a lot of time. There's a preferred direction that you see here. And we begin the same thing with the galaxies. It's slightly easier to see a spiral if it's anti-clockwise than if it's clockwise. And so we, once we know that, we can measure it, and we can adjust for it just like any other systematic effect. And I also like the slide because no one's listening to me. So I can make a, a quick escape to the world open at this point, and then come back in half an hour. I don't have too much time to talk about the scientific results, but I wanted to give you one flavour of what we're working on. Um, I can sense the disappointment I have about the ballerina. Or maybe during Rob's bit of this talk. One thing that seems to shape these galaxies, something that we've only realised in the last probably five to ten years, is the black holes that lurk at their centre. So most big galaxies, all big galaxies we think, have supermassive black holes at their centre, ranging from a few hundred thousand times the mass of the sun up to maybe a few hundred million times the mass of the sun, depending on the, the size of the galaxy. Maybe. Um, but it, it, it seems illogical to argue that such a small thing, I mean they're heavy, but they, they would take up less than a full stop at the centre of these galaxies in space, could affect the rest of the galaxy, and yet that's what we think is happening. So let me, let me talk you through that for a second. First of all, we have strong evidence for black holes at the centre of these galaxies. The best evidence comes from the Milky Way. What you're looking at here is 10 years' worth of observations of stars moving around at the centre of our galaxy. And you can see that these stars are clearly orbiting something. They're orbiting something that's not shining, or which is smaller than the solar system. When you work it out, it's about three estimates vary between two and four million times the mass of the sun. Uh, and it's a black hole at the centre of our galaxy. It may be about to have an interesting time, because there is a gas cloud, and these are observations from 2002, uh, we added the red ring later. Uh, that's not to me, the point the average we got here. It's important to clarify these things. Uh, but that gas cloud turns out the latest theory is that's actually a young star surrounded by a disk which may or may not be forming planets. But that's about to get eaten over the next couple of decades by the black hole at the centre. It makes a close approach next year and is expected to form an accretion disk. We're going to get to watch this for the first time. Um, so the Milky Way's black hole may be about to feed. But other galaxies, this happens all the time. And so this is the large galaxy, M87. This is at the centre of the Virgo cluster, our nearest really big cluster. Um, and here, the black hole is active all the time. And as the material spirals down onto the black hole, 
uh, an interaction between uh, the magnetic fields that are set up in the region and the material can power these incredibly uh, fast and powerful jets. You can see that here in blue. And this is a, a, jet, a collimated jet of material that's moving at about 99% of the speed of light. And so these jets shoot out from the region around the black hole. But we think that they may be able to either trigger, in some cases, star formation in the galaxies, or they may stop star formation by heating up gas or expelling it from the galaxies. A process known as AGM feedback. And it's our current panacea for whatever doesn't work between the computer model and the real universe. We just blame AGM feedback. And so what we need to do is pin down exactly how this feedback works. Uh, and that brings me to Brian May from the Rock Band Queen. Uh, he's an astronomer, uh, not oxygen addicted, but never mind. And, uh, in fact, he, he didn't finish his PhD, he got rather distracted by you know, playing gigs to hundreds of thousands of people and so on. Uh, but he was one of the people who got excited about galaxies. He wrote about it on his blog, uh, which led us to Hani Barapa, who was a biology teacher in the Netherlands. Um, who is a big Brian May fan, she has the same guitar as him. Um, and Hallie was one of the first people to see this, just one of the images that we put into Galaxy. If you give this to a computer and it's doing well, it will tell you that that galaxy uh, has spiral arms, just about, they're quite dusty. If you show it to a human, they want to know what the blue blob is. Uh, and Hallie called this blue blob a barbell. Does anyone speak Dutch? My pronunciation was spot on. Uh, <laughs> Dutch people don't say very I can never hear the difference. But Vorbe, we thought it was a technical term. So we called this object Hanny Vorbe, and that's how it's referred to in the literature. Turns out it means thingy. <laughs> uh, not in the root sense, if that's sort of wanting that kind of thing. And, and this object is fascinating. We managed to get Hubble Space Telescope time to get a look at it. This is what it looks like with Hubble. It's a vast galaxy sized glowing cloud of gas at about 50,000 Kelvin with no stars in it. And so the question is, how has it got heated to 50,000 degrees? The answer is that we think it got zapped by a jet driven by the black hole at the center of the neighboring galaxy. It's in the right position to be hit by a jet. So that's fine. So, so all we had to do was check that the black hole was active, that such a jet existed, you do that by going looking at the x-rays. We got about 3,000 seconds worth of observation time. Um, X-ray astronomers haven't invented minutes for reasons I don't understand. So three kiloseconds um, on a couple of big orbiting X-ray constellations. And in our three kiloseconds, we received three photons uh, from this galaxy. You have to name your photons that this is a non-detection. In other words, the black hole that set in this galaxy isn't active. But it was, but remember, the distance here is about 50,000 light years between the galaxy and the border. And so that black hole was active 50,000 years ago. We've caught it in the act of transitioning from being very active to being very quiet. Something we knew must happen, because over cosmic time, we know that the population of black holes, active black holes changes. We know that most black holes were very active billions of years ago, it's a minority in the universe today, but we've never caught one in the actual transition. And so we're now pointing pretty much everything we can get at this object, which was only found because of that human ability to go, what on earth is this? 
that ability to make serendipitous discoveries, we're now uh, able to understand and read off the history of this black hole. Humans, it turned out, were also motivated by fame and by wanting to have an object named after them. So, of course, all our other participants, our other volunteers, also wanted a Volver. Who wouldn't want a Volver for their own? Um, and it turns out we haven't quite found more Volver. We have found Volverpees, small versions. And so each of these galaxies have hot gas that show signs of being ionized by heterogeneous black holes. About half of them show signs of going from active to quiet within the last couple of hundred thousand years. Uh, and we have a big Hubble Space Telescope program uh, designed to, to look at these and show us them in detail. Now, we've only got rough data, and I'm utterly forbidden from showing, showing them to you, so it would be terrible if anything happened. Uh, I accidentally managed to show you some of the spectacular images uh, that we're getting from Hubble, which show off. Uh, the real difference. <laughs> the last one was the most exciting. Um, but we're seeing these incredibly complicated shapes, um, which we can use to disentangle the history of these black holes on time scales that, as astronomers, we can't do. We're used to watching things happen in seconds, days, or years, and we're used to talking about millions or billions of years. We, it's really hard for us to talk about tens or hundred thousands of years. Thanks to Hemi. Brian May and about 500,000 people uh, were able to do that. And it turns out that it's not just astronomers who need to do this. So I'm going to hand over to Rob, who's going to talk about turning galaxies in, the project we've been telling you about, uh, to the Zooniverse, a whole collection of projects. Are you going to share as well? I'm just going to share uh, hi, yes, so, uh, yeah, Galaxy Zoo uh, has been a big hit. Uh, 350,000 volunteers, it's difficult to count the classifications, um, but uh, it's in the hundreds of millions here. Um, yeah, helping the children classify galaxies. So, the logical thing to do was to take this model and apply it to other realms. We've applied it to other astronomy realms and also to other non-astronomy realms. So I thought I'd take you through some of the projects to get an idea. Do you want to just turn the mics off? Because I think yeah. you're near them. Yeah, 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 I'm joking. Um, sorry. <clears throat> but yeah, they're by humans looking and listening to the sounds. And they have to do that visually. They look for patterns that look like other patterns. And they find whale calls that match. 
It's another task that computers are not very good at. Uh, another site that we got is called C4 Explorer. Now this one launched just uh, two days ago, uh, three days ago. Um, at c4explorer.org, it was showing images from this instrument called Havcam. Uh, it's, I say instrument, it, it's a sort of semi-submersible device that is dragged by a boat uh, about six to eight feet above the seabed. And it takes these really high resolution images of the seafloor. And what they want to do is count what creatures they find and where. So they can determine the populations of starfish and crustaceans and their environment and their food and their predators. And doing that, they understand much more about these species. It's a task which they've been doing themselves up to now, looking at images and counting fish and measuring fish and saying whether it's sand or gravel. But doing it on scale would be uh, much better. And it's been a big hit, in fact. We've had, uh, well, I didn't check this morning, but something like 200,000 100 and something thousand last night when I last looked, 180,000, in, in, uh, in just a matter of hours, in a matter of two or three days. And so this is going well, and we're hoping that by everyone diving into the service and, and having a look, we can collect a lot more interesting information. And in fact, they've already found a curious creature, which they're calling a convict worm, uh, which is a black and white striking worm. And the, in, in these images, in a couple of these, uh, that no one has seen before. So that sort of human serendipitous discovery that computers can never make. Moon Zoo is something similar, but it's on the moon. Uh, it's high resolution images of the surface of the moon. Now, when I say high resolution, you can see the Apollo lander's tracks in these images. And you can see the launch marks from when they went off the surface of the, of the moon. Uh, this has been running for a while, and uh, we, we, it, it's difficult to figure out how to explain how much work gets done in this project. But we have more than 3 million image classifications, which means we've gone through nearly 10 whales units, and that's the country whales, which I believe is the standard unit of area uh, in astronomy. Another one is the Milky Way project. The Milky Way project, another astronomy project, looks at uh, beautiful Spitzer Space Telescope infrared data in our galaxy. And it looks in regions which are pitch black to the naked eye, but when you look at them in infrared, they come alight like this. <coughs> and they look like this because we're looking at interstellar media, the diffuse dust and gas that lies between stars. And when stars form in large, dense clouds of material, they, when they ignite, they blow off radiation and they create bubbles in the interstellar media. And the Milky Way project is all about people marking and finding the bubbles. Another task which computers are not so hot at, but people can do very well. And in the Milky Way project, they found strange, compact, what look like they call yellow balls, where they turn out to be very compact star forming regions that people easily just see because they look interesting and they wonder what they are, uh, but which astronomers can use to create useful catalogs and databases to do future research. Old Weather is a project which has actually just come to a transition point. In one sense, it's finished, and in another sense, it's about to enter a whole new uh, life. Old Weather is, is all about transcribing Royal Navy ships <coughs> from around the time of the First World War up to now, and that changed. Um, these ships logs were handwritten by officers in the Royal Navy, and they were done six times a day. They would note the air temperature, the sea temperature, and the air pressure, the wind speed and direction. 
And of course they sailed all over the world. And they did this with a standard set of instruments. These are the same barometers and thermometers across different ships. What they were originally doing was building up a global climate model. But they were doing it in handwritten records. And computers find handwriting difficult the best of time. So they especially find this stuff in this cursive script from around 100 years ago. So we put these up online, high-resolution scans, and asked people to tell us the climate information. And in return, they also got to transcribe a bunch of other interesting stuff. All the ship's logs pages include uh, events that happen on board the ship. So there's a few examples here, which I will attempt to read from down here. A lecture by the captain, subject evolution of man, which I rather like. <laughs> Held impromptu concert on board deck. Things that they were doing. You can track people coming off on and off the ships. There's a guy called Admiral Tupper who tends to ship hop through the war, giving people medals and reporting on the, the progress of things to various people. That's all recorded in the logs. Things like the beginning of the war are recorded in the logs. Because the logs begin before the war and end after it, the entire history of the First World War, from a very personal perspective, is included here. And that's obviously uh, of great interest to lots of people. Just uh, one more on here, that the bottom right says, observed comet in the sky eastward. Uh, because we have a lot of crossover between our old weather users and the Galaxy Zoo people uh, and other astronomy projects, but this got lots of very excited on our forums trying to figure out what the comet must have been based on where the ship was and when this was mentioned. So they have a lot of fun on old weather and uh, it's useful for climate scientists primarily, but also for family historians and historians in general. And it creates uh, beautiful data. Uh, this is a, a, a map of that data. The colour of the dots shows you the air pressure. So uh, blue and yellow are good weather, basically, and white and blue are bad weather. That's more or less being connected. And what's going to happen here is you're seeing the war play out. Uh, because we have the position of where points recorded uh, and uh, the date and the time, we can just hit play and watch the weather and the ships move around the globe. This is one example of these, but there's the wall. You can see the ships really start to go. You can see that they cross through the oceans a lot. Uh, they cover all the areas where weather stations are not commonly found. And they clear up what the chief scientist of this project calls the fog of ignorance. This sort of cloudy unknown area in the oceans where we don't have any data and we will need to put in their plots. We like to go data mining in the old weather database, and just for fun one day, we uh, did a, a full text search in the entire database, which is over a million pages, so it's an awful lot of words, for the word overboard. And we built up what we call the old weather treasure map. So if you were after a galvanized hand bucket, there's one just off the coast of Ireland uh, where this huge bubble is going there. So we were exploring this map and we found something slightly less fun, which is that overboard also tells you when people go overboard. And one of the things about old weather uh, was that it was going to help reveal, and presumably is now recovering that because it's near to the end of it, uh, where and how some people died in the war. Uh, a lot of people went away on a ship, came back, and that all that was known is that they didn't return, they came back there. And so for family historians, this could be a valuable source of information. So uh, that was an unexpected sideline on the treasure map. Finally, along with that, the users uh, can do something else with they can just record information for their own benefit and their own interest. So they were going to record the number of people that were on the sick list 
of the ship. There's a number of people who are in sick bay. And they did this at their own accord. The information was on the page. We didn't ask them to record it, but they did. And this is a plot for the HMS Africa of the number of people in sick bay, uh, basically throughout a long period of war, near the end of the war. Uh, if you know the history of the period, just at the end of the First World War and afterwards, there was uh, a massive flu epidemic called the Spanish flu. And this is the Spanish flu breaking out on the HMS Africa. And it's interesting because if you plot the entire old weather fleet together, you can see the ups and downs of various ships, and you can see the, the virus spread within a ship, not by Africa, it was a port, and things like that. It's quite an interesting set of data that the users created for themselves. But the other project I just wanted to quickly mention a bit more about was Solar Storm Launch. Now, this is a project which uh, is looking for massive coronal mass ejection at the surface of the sun. You can see a picture of one of those happening here. And what you do on the site is uh, you, you look at data from two telescopes in your windshields called Stereo A and B, ahead and behind the Earth. So Stereo A is orbiting ahead of you, and B is behind. And they look into the gap in the middle. So they give you a view of the space between the sun and the Earth, and they let you watch solar storms fly out from the sun and the Earth. Now the purpose of the site was to do that, and to track those storms, and to calculate when they would hit the Earth, how often, with what energy. And this turned out to be a better way of doing it than most existing models. But the users spotted, as is the trend for this section of the talk, something else that was interesting. They became obsessed with these pictures. Uh, they're called particle strikes. And what's happening is the camera is being hit by a, a little bit of dust as it moves around the sun. And when it does that, fragments of the casing fly off and reflect light. And you see these really cool images, which as I said, they call particle strikes. Except that what's happening really here is you're seeing when the camera hits dust more and less often as it goes around the orbit. And so what this allowed the scientists to do was build up a map of the distribution of dust in the Earth's orbit around the Sun, an entirely unexpected side effect of this project. So the universe keeps growing, as I said, we added a project this week, uh, we're adding projects next week, and hopefully the week after too. Um, we are expanding, and we have science teams and data all across the world. And the reason this all works is that people power is a very big resource waiting to be exploited. Uh, this is a good diagram I'd like to show the big boom box that's 200 billion hours that US adults spent watching television in one year, I think it was 2010. The tiny little blue box on the right, that's the 100 million hours it took to create Wikipedia in its current form. So if you can take a little bit of that attention and divert it to something else, you can create something quite amazing. I presume everyone uses Wikipedia, which is a very good resource. Another example of this uh, are these guys. These are the angry birds. Uh, two of them are not angry birds, two of them are the green pigs. You know, you're getting your friend killed. Um, angry birds absorbs a lot of human attention. It's available on pretty much every computing platform that exists. Uh, the company that made it wrote uh, made sure of that. Uh, the human race spends uh, 16 years playing Angry Birds every day. <laughs> so if you can tap into a bit of that, that's quite a phenomenal resource. The, a guy called Ray Shirky is called Cognitive Service. <coughs> so numbers from the Zooniverse to compare to that, um, since 
Galaxy Zoo relaunched the other day. We've had more than six months of human attention from the project. And the Galaxy Zoo in total so far has absorbed more than seven years of human attention. But that's consistent attention. You can actually try to divide it into, say, uh, how much someone would have to work full time, and then we'll multiply it from there. And the Zooniverse it's, itself has absorbed something like 45 years of human attention in the last five years. But these numbers are piddly compared to what's possible. That 200 billion hours the US adults spend watching TV, that's 22 million hours a day. That's two and a half thousand years every day, just in the US, that people are spending watching TV. And there's the 16 years from Angry Birds that made everyone gasp earlier. So there's a lot of cognitive circles out there, and the Zoom And at that time, I stepped back over to Chris, who will find machines are going to take over. Thanks. Um, at the Keeman Island, we've rested a number of projects. Uh, we have about 250 scientists who are working with us now to, to sort through their data. And really, it's about making a harmonious link between man and machine, machines <laughs> collect the data, and us humans classify it. Uh, except that we've all seen the film involving humans and machines, and this is much more realistic. Uh, my version of this nightmare is a little uh, more uh, specific than most. Here's mine. Uh, in which the machine rampaging down the street is the next generation optical telescope. So this is a telescope called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Terrible name, great telescope. Uh, which is just about to start construction. It's as big as the biggest telescopes in the world today. It's got an 8.5 meter mirror, but it's designed as a survey telescope. It's going to cover the whole sky every three nights. And so you can build those up into deeper and deeper images. But you can also think of it as making a movie in the sky. So just give you some numbers. Uh, the, the reduced data set from LSST, so not the raw images, but the, the output of the computing system, runs at about 30 terabytes a night. Something like that. Um, let's restrict the problem. Let's just care about things that change in the sky. A conservative estimate is that we'll get about 200,000 alerts that the brightness of something has changed. And that would include asteroids, variable stars, planets orbiting in front of their stars, the centers of galaxies flickering as material falls into their black holes. And so the biggest challenge facing astronomers now is that we have to work out how we're going to filter that data. And some of it could be computers, but we want to reserve a place for humans, I think, because we need to make these so difficult as We need to find and pay attention to the truly unusual stuff that will be lurking in here. If you don't think that's a scary enough scale, the next generation radio telescope, the Square Quadrature Array, which we're very involved in, will produce information at about the same rate as the internet does. So it will grow at the same rate as the internet, a few terabytes, something like 30 terabytes a second. And uh, the major cost of that project is that the array is only astronomers if it's the data processing. Uh, actually, the data processing sector, the first cost of the SK is the wiring. Literally, the biggest cost is Together. So we need to get smarter about how we deal with these large data sets. It's not just an astronomical problem. So the first way that we want to do that is we need to make our volunteers smarter. At the minute, to a large part, we're asking people to do basic pattern recognition tasks, which anyone can do. But we also want to provide tools so that people can get much further before they get to the point where they have to recruit uh, us professionals. One place that's happening is a project that Rob didn't talk about, Planet Hunters, 
And so here, we take data from a NASA satellite called Kepler, uh, and each dot here is a measurement of a star's brightness. Uh, and to give you a scale, the top to the bottom of this plot uh, is 0.1% in brightness. And so these are incredibly accurate measurements of a star, and we get curves measured every 29 minutes, and we get curves like this for 150,000 stars. Uh, computers do a good job, they found a few thousand planets, uh, but this dip here, this dip in light over on the far right, which is caused by a three Earth radii planet getting in front of the star, was missed by the automatic routines. And so we need humans as a check that we're not missing the unusual planets. What's good, and we, and we found, we're up to, we found about 20 good planet candidates that have been missed. And we're in the process of confirming them and publishing them. Including some very exciting stuff that I'm really not going to tell you that's due out next month. And, but what's interesting about this one is we didn't find this, the volunteers, because they know what they're looking for. They saw this, though, okay, this is a planet. And on the discussion forum, not only did they identify it, and you're not going to be able to read this, but they went through this and they said, okay, Yes, we think this is a planet. Somebody who isn't a scientist managed to take all the times that planet gets in front, combine them, make sure that that was all safe, and then they even managed to make measurements. So we got an email that said, we found a planet, it's three Earth radii, it has this orbit, it's a centric, there's a slight uh, sense that the measurement of the temperature of the star is wrong, so we've corrected that, uh, and basically the discovery paper was already written by the volunteers. And so one of the things we're paying attention to is building systems that allow that sort of expertise, people with physics degrees and time on their hands, for example, to participate at levels that are higher than just collecting classified. Uh, so one response is to do that. The other one is to make friends with the machines. Uh, and so we started looking at live projects. And so this telescope, this is the Arrow Telescope Array uh, in Northern California. Um, and this is a dedicated telescope that is looking for signals for, from aliens, from SETI, uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. This is exactly a problem where what you want to do is find the unusual. You can't program a search that goes through all the data real time and just says, look for the weird stuff. If you knew what signals the aliens were sending, then you could find them with computers. But we don't. And, and so we have a system that takes data live from the telescope which goes onto the web, setting live as the project, um, and asks people within three minutes of the data being taken to make the decision, should we move on to the next target, or is there something there that's worth following up? And we're managing, we now have this working live, and so that within three minutes we can have enough attention so that humans and machines together can make a decision. There's loads more I can say about all of this, but I, I see it's already 10-2. And so I'm going to finish by putting up some web links. Give that some scary graphs. And the sun is also a place where you want to do some of this live stuff. Um, if you want to take part in any of this, you can happily spend time at zooniverse.org. If you are an academic or you know people who have data sets that need human attention, uh, we're asking for proposals so we can, we can build new projects. And if you've got questions, you can ask them in a minute or email me. And if you like Rob and I, we have a weekly, really rather random podcast. Uh, that I'd like to recommend. Anyway, thank you for your attention. Uh, we've got some time for questions. Do you have any? Thank you.